Welcome back to the Continuous Coach Podcast for episode number 9. My name is Darcy Bellier and along with my co-host Mark Lange, our goal is to build a platform with which you can bring forth conversation with people from within and outside the game of lacrosse in an effort to help us all become better coaches. Today's guest is someone with a long history in the game, both as a player and a coach. We're lucky to have connected with him. You can find this episode and other recordings on multiple podcast platforms, including Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Podcasts, and Radio Public, as well as Apple Podcasts. You can also support us on your preferred platform and then share your conversations via social media by tagging us at the Cont Coach on both Instagram and Twitter. Or send us an email if you'd like to connect with us at thecontinuouscoach at gmail.com. On to our guest. Neil Dodridge is an NLL player for 15 years with stops in Detroit, Boston, Buffalo, Syracuse, Pittsburgh, Washington, Calgary, and finally Minneapolis, winning two championships in both Detroit and Buffalo. He's also a winner of seven-man cups, six in a row, starting with the Brampton Excelsiors of the MSL, then the Six Nation Chiefs, and lastly, the Victoria Shamrocks of WLA. He also won a Founders' Cup at the Junior B level and a President's Cup with Senior B Ladner Pioneers. He was Director of Scouting for Minnesota Swarm and a scout with the Calgary Athletics as well. He became a WLA Quick Senior A coach in 2010. Um, he moved on to BC Junior A Quick Adnax coach in 2012 and 2013, winning uh, the BC Championship both those years and ultimately losing, unfortunately, in the Mental Cups. Then moved on uh, to the Junior A Delta Islanders in 2016. They were also BC champions and unfortunately lost in the Mental Cup there as well. Internationally, Neil is a part of Finland uh, for 2015 and 2019 and most recently has joined the um, Switzerland national team as the head coach. So where about North Van are you, Neil? Are you in uh, like Lynn Valley? Are you over kind of off Lonsdale? No, I'm in uh, I'm in West Van, so more towards oh, West Van. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, Dundrave. Yeah, so I'm uh, like more towards the ferries, the Horseshoe Bay ferries that are heading over to the island from uh, right. to Nanaimo. Yeah, and Sunshine Coast. So yeah, the view here's uh, uh, priceless to say the least. Yeah, for sure. My uh, my uncle's uh, he's from Nanaimo and he has a lot of family still out in BC. And his brother lives somewhere in West Van. I I've been there a couple of times, but you know if you if I had to tell you to, you know to live, I wouldn't be able to. So <laughs> it's a great it's a it's a great place to call home. And uh, my son goes to high school here, so uh, it's uh, he's you know grade nine and and uh, I was away quite a bit after I retired from lacrosse. Because I was uh, I'm an oil rig fire trained oil rig firefighter, so I was up in northern BC for too too many weeks at a time, and uh, um, I found that th- these are the most important years for my son. So it's good that I'm close. Is he playing? Um, is there a, is there an association in West Van, or is he playing Richmond or North Van, or is he playing lacrosse at all? Uh, he he did uh, at a young age. He played uh, for he played North Shore. And then I uh, played hockey in West Van, and then uh, he, he retired without a press conference, we'll say. And uh, <laughs> he's uh, a rugby player and a gamer at this point. And nice. A world tra- he was lucky enough to be a world traveler uh, with me when I coached Finland because um, uh, I got to bring my family on a lot of the trips. So uh, yeah. uh, Liam's been to Iceland, um, all through Europe, Italy. Um, with uh, with the travel and obviously he was there for European Championships when uh, Finland won the bronze and uh, that was in uh, Turku Finland and uh, so he really he really enjoyed he really enjoyed the Finnish the Finnish guys they really took care of him. What um well I mean I, the kids to me like my kid played lacrosse too I'm sure just as your kid was in the beginning right but you just want them to be active at the end of the day right like I'm sure that's for you that as long as they're active rugby is a great sport I wish I kind of played rugby but always seem to be in the springtime but I never really did um is rugby big in Vancouver or what's the yeah West Van's quite um there's some famous guys that came out of West Van like uh Jamie Cudmore he's uh he was captain of uh Canadian national team played over in Claremont uh Luke Cudmore uh played with London Wasps but the the big 
club here is Capilanos, and they play at the base of uh, Lions, uh, Lionsgate Bridge. So uh, a good a good YouTube follow or a good YouTube peak would be uh, Jamie Cudmore fights, and uh, he's uh, he's a beast, and he was the captain for Team Canada Rugby for uh, quite a few years. Retired now, he runs the new program out of uh, Victoria. Actually, he's moved back from Europe, and he's been I think he's been in Victoria for a couple of years now. Nice. Nice. Um, so you have lots of experiences in the game, obviously, uh, as both a player and as a coach. Do you have a favorite memory? Um, well, we won our first, uh, I was fortunate enough as a rookie in 1986. I was, you know, how old are you there? First year, first year junior, like obviously. 17, it, I think. Yes. Yes. 16 or 17. And I think I hadn't played junior hockey yet. So I was a rookie in 86 with the Tomahawks. And I used to go to the Tomahawk games as a youngster, like throw the ball in between periods. Hopefully, you know, the coach would see me. And then uh, my father was a Mississauga firefighter. So there were a lot of fathers that eventually joined the executive and stuff. So I was fortunate enough to make it as a rookie, as a 16-year-old. I went to Brampton Excelsior Junior A camp with Jimmy Beltman was there, Troy Corley. But, and they wanted to sign me uh, with, well, I think Pat Coyle was there, Tommy Fair. But I was just like, no, nah, my heart's in Mississauga. Like, I want to play there. And we had we had a pretty good team. We had some players. Like, I don't know, uh, John Tavares, he was, he was there. He was pretty good. Ted Dowling. Not bad. <laughs> Johnny Rosa, Joe Rosa. You know, we we, were, we had a good group of guys. But we had, uh, the year we won in 86, we won in Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia, um, mm. against Edmonton, Gold Bar Miners. But that was kind of like the coming out party for for John. Like he kind of put his, his, I mean, he was known, but uh, he did really well in that. And, uh, you know, he's been a friend since. And um, my dad has passed, he passed away in 2016, but he flew in for the final game. And then he came back on the bus with us because we took the bus uh, down to Halifax. And uh, yeah, that, we had some, well, we had some players on there. We had Chris Strom. He's got three kids that are in the NHL, Ryan Strom. Um, of course, the names won't come to me. Um, so Chris Dylan's Strom, another one. Pardon me? Dylan Strom as well, I think, right? And then there's another one in uh, the minors in Philadelphia. He's the biggest of the three. So, like, Chris Strom was kind of a guy I looked up to because I kind of wanted to play the way he was a two-way guy, uh, pretty tough. And I remember I got beat up pretty good in Huntsville in my rookie year. And, uh, like, real bad, like, pretty bad. And uh, um, my dad was, we, you know, on the way back from Huntsville, and he's like, hey, did you? Did at any point did the like TV screen go out? I'm like, no. What do you mean? Like he was trying to see if I got knocked out. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, not at all. He's like, well, don't be worried about ever. Don't worry about anything ever because if that doesn't knock you out, you'll never get knocked out. So maybe that's the way I played from that point on. Like I was a I was a pretty um, aggressive player when I played. I don't hold anything back. No regrets. But uh, that really helped me uh, as a 16 year old uh, winning the Founders Cup in uh, lower Sackville because I played a lot. I didn't realize how much I played. And then you see all these footages and tapes. Jeez, I was on the short man as a 16 year old. And it was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. I think winning your first year junior uh, will definitely be an incredible memory. And, and with people you've grown up with in your community, no doubt. Um, fast forwarding a little bit, um, you know, you coached in Coquitlam with the junior A team. Uh, I think it's safe to say when you coach the junior Adnax expectation is a Minto every year. Um, so when you start off with the team, what's your message with, uh, with the guys? Um, well, it's fortunate enough, uh, that I got hired in 2010 by, uh, Doc Hedges and Les, the late Les Wingrove, who became quite a mentor towards me, well, with me, for me. Um, he passed away about three, four years ago, but, um, he was kind of like the, like the, the guy in Coquitlam. He was like Mr. Adnack and I was a shamrock and I was a, and whenever we, we played them in the bank cup as well. So I didn't really know less. And uh, they approached me after the Olympics and asked if I wanted to coach WA team. So I, that started the relationship and my WA team was loaded with Dane Dobie's developments. Uh, we got Nick Rose, his rookie year out of Ontario. Um, so that was my, that was my inauguration of coaching. And uh, I was very fortunate because Dane was leading our offense and I didn't hire an offensive coach. I just said to Dane, I said, you run our offense. I'll take care of the back end and our goaltend. And so that was my introduction. I think we made the playoffs, lost to Victorian six. 
which was fine. We didn't need to play New West in the final. We didn't need to beat Victoria. We just needed to grow as a group. Then I went back up north, firefighting, and then came back in 2012, and Kurt Malowski contacted me and said, hey, would you think maybe you'd want to maybe coach the juniors? And that's how I got uh, into the ADNAX organization at the junior level, which right. is kind of like a plum job out here, to say the least. And mm-hmm. they expected, you know, within the ADNAX organization, they're ex- like, they have high standards because most of those kids have won all the way up. Um, growing up, I kind of compare them to Whippy. Um, and, uh, you know, Whippy was always good in my age group, everywhere around. And so they were kind of the Whippy of, of uh, BC. They'd always, them in New West have always gone at it, but let's just say Coquitlam's always got the healthier results um, when it comes to BC championships. And it was, uh, the standard was to win BCs and go to Bento. Anything else is unacceptable. That wasn't told to me, but I had expectations like having played in Canadian championships. You're not going to waste your summer not planning. So I would go on there first day and say, look at the calendar and like, men, we have 90 days to go from here to uh, and that includes strength, speed, cardio recovery, learning how to play as a team, you know, and, and dialing it in. And it worked out those two years. We first year we beat. New West. Uh, I think we lost Westburg. He broke his leg. And then the second year, we weren't bad. We weren't even close to New West. We were like five goals less all the way. Like they were a better team. Um, I was in charge of player personnel. We made trades at the deadline. Got Pete Dabinsky for a second year in a row, who plays for Halifax. Um, our team was loaded. Challen Rogers, Westburg, Mike Messenger, go down the line. Taylor Stewart. We had players and Jordan Gillis, who was one of my favorite players to coach. These players, like Jordan Gillis, Taylor Stewart, they, you know, they hope to play in the NLL, but I knew they'd play in the NLL. And it's it just about selling, selling them that they had to improve. Like they're junior lacrosse players, they're going to have fun. But uh, just the fact that you got to improve every week and you got to win season series against teams. And so, fortunate enough, we had really good teams and that kind of carried us through those seasons to say the least. But the end goal was knowing that either we're going to play Whippy or Six Nations. And I went back and scouted Six Nations and knew we what we needed because I could for eye test wise. And uh, we were prepared. The only the only one that kind of hurt was against Six Nations. We're up two nothing in a four to seven. And uh, we didn't we didn't get a tough guy at the deadline. We had uh, Patrick Thornhill. We thought he had him. And then we couldn't get the trade done and then I actually had to trade him uh back to east. So he ended up going to Six Nations and then they had a two headed monster with Trevor Stacy and him. And that kind of was that kind of hurt us because we uh, team toughness we didn't really have. So two things I want to pull out there. Um uh the first one you talk about athletic development during the course of those ninety days. So um is that you know just stuff in practice or are you bringing guys to the gym uh before practice having runs um and, and the second one is you mentioned you know some guys who've gone in to have some success in in the pro careers um uh, how do you or what, what, what you you start the conversation with them and build a relationship um and you see it like you have the potential to go here what are some things you kind of to help those guys get there uh well we were fortunate enough because a lot of those kids were on full rides in the states so when they were coming back it was like especially the first year like um because I believe Westberg, he came back late because Den- he was at Denver. Denver was a, a late, like, end of the year. They were the latest school. And, uh, you know, one of the first schools that the kids came back was from Drexel in Philadelphia. And so my GM would say, because I didn't know any of the players, he would say, uh, we got uh, we got Taylor Stewart coming in this week. And then you'd meet him face-to-face, and you're like, okay. And then, and then Challen Rogers shows up, and you're just like, oh, my God. And Mike Messenger rolls through the door and you're like, wow. And then it just, you just kind of, you're building. Like all of a sudden you've had, then you add a Westberg who, you know, I think one of the summers there he played for Team Canada uh, and won the World Field Lacrosse Championships in Denver. And you're just like, like that's elite level talent that you have. And, you know, you want to keep them healthy, but you want to keep them driven. And uh, they're so used to, they're kind of used to success, we'll say. 
that um, you still had to make sure that the fire was burning. And, you know, I don't, it was a, it's a great place to play. Like even it's, I think it's senior, it's going to be become a good place to play. They've redone the arena, the palace on Poirier. It's, it's a, uh, it's a legit destination if kids want to come up West to, to say the least, if that covers most of it. Did you have another part of that question? Well, just the athletic development piece, like you spoke about, you know, the strength and power um, and needing to add those pieces as you go in the, those 90 days. So um, is that something that you just do in part of your practice planning or is it um, guys are going to the gym or you have, you know, team runs? How do you kind of uh, continue to push that other side of, um, of your of your players? Yeah, the, um, the stuff they did away from the rink, like they're a pretty tight team. So um, it just all wasn't just. Uh, they, I mean, they were, uh, they were putting the work in, we'll say, but that we were lucky because a lot of them were division one athletes. They came back fit. Like they weren't waiting for the season to start and like they're, in, you know, they might, they'll probably be, they probably during that time, probably not the best, they're probably in the best shape of their lives. And it's just a matter of, we won't say load management, but our practices were crisp, crisp, crisp and, and, uh, make sure everybody's like healthy, fit, ready to go. Like there wasn't a lot of ton of contact, but it was more strategy, face-offs and improving every week. So by the 90 days, you're not wasting those first 85 and then realizing, oh, hey, we're going to the mental cup where a lot of teams uh, in that league, if they were to ever all of a sudden get to the chance to play in the mental cup, I don't think they'd be as prepared as Coquitlam. And I honestly think the reason that Coquitlam is successful is because they were the only ones for 10 years that would get to experience mental cups because they kept on one of the BC championships. And that, that experience is invaluable being going to war. Uh, we'll say battling against the Ontario teams in the mental cup. Um, you get street cred. You're playing against the best players in the country um, at under 20. And that builds you uh, for a, a pro career, because I think these kids need to be in those, those because uh, lacrosse some nights is a war like they have to go through it um, I think you if you I find if you draft winners uh, winners know how to win it's tough to teach kids uh, how to how to become winners but I did it in Delta like we'll get to that eventually but um, yeah with the Coquitlam's that's why a lot of these kids get drafted is because they've been to the middle cups they've been successful they've played against the best players and when you look at the uh, eye test you know this is challen rogers and uh you know one of the top players from orangeville like how do they look together and then you know obviously he looked really good because toronto drafted him and he's a he's a mainstay with the rock and being a captain that's uh that's probably why they chose him to say the least so, Neil, you've been in, involved with uh, Ontario and BC lacrosse. Um, you know, they're, they're both the strongest box regions around, um, but they have some similarities and differences. Can you talk to us about some of the similarities and differences that you see and, and maybe one that, uh, that, that, that each should adopt from the other? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, when, I, when I was out here... Like I've been out here since '97, so I've I've seen the growth of BC lacrosse. But I think honestly, one thing that hurt BC development was the fact that they had the intermediate league. So the first two years of junior, like me playing as a, I'll use myself as an example, me playing the first two years of junior B as a 16, 17 year old, um, they have an intermediate league here where you at those ages you're still playing. It's like like juvenile, so you you just extended your your minor career. And you're unless you get exceptional status like a Westberg, you're not allowed to play five years of junior. Like that's the way it used to be. So when I was with Coquitlam, I really pushed it. I really said, you know, for our development of BC lacrosse, we got when you get into these meetings, you got to try and get to five years of junior. Um, it's only going to help. It's only going to help the development. It's going to give BC a better chance to win mental cups because honestly. When a Whippy kid is 16 years old and he's playing for the Warriors and he's getting playoff experience and a Coquitlam kid is playing intermediate and he's going to provincial championships, which is kind of a glorified midget championship. Um, you're not, you're really not developing the player 
um, to play against men and to play against people that are stronger. You're just playing against the same kids you played against in midget. So um, they they adopted that. They took away intermediate. Um, I want to think that maybe that was five years ago, and it's uh, and they've gone to like a junior B system and a junior A system, and the junior B system feeds the junior A system, and uh, that's the way it's. I mean, that's the way it's been run in Ontario since the beginning, and I'm not sure why BC went to that, but with the intermediate, but they've changed it, and I think that's seeing both sides. That's been a positive for. Uh, for BC lacrosse, BC junior lacrosse, to say the least. Do you think that there's a, an argument on the other side? I, I know uh, when I first moved up here, learning about the differences between the two, it, it seemed like BC went that uh, went that way because they thought it would allow for the growth of the game to be better. So maybe it won't uh, develop the the most elite team uh, that can go to Minto or the most elite league, but it's going to offer more kids playing lacrosse. Do you think there's an argument on that side, or do you think that either way, uh, the growth of lacrosse and able to develop elite talent and a great junior program uh, can be done under that uh, this new structure? Uh, no, I, I definitely hear you on that side. I just think that the uh, like if if you're a player and you're a junior B caliber, um, you you can develop over your five years um, to by the the fourth and fifth year that you're uh, able to get called up or you make a junior A team. Um, I think there's too much pressure on the kids out here if they play two years intermediate, then. Then all of a sudden, if you're not good enough to make the junior A team, what do you do? Like, like the junior B team was the junior B league, we'll call it, was not very high quality. By setting up these two, like a junior B league and the, obviously the the junior A league, um, players like in teams like Richmond, Richmond Roadrunners, who've been junior A back in the day, have a strong minor program. But maybe the kids aren't Coquitlam, Adnac. A level players, but they want to play junior lacrosse in their hometown. And uh, I, I coached there for a couple of years uh, in Richmond Roadrunners Junior, and they, um, those kids love playing in Richmond. And they, a lot of the teams that are in the Junior A League have Junior B teams as well, like Maple Ridge. Uh, well, Maple Ridge is a bad example. Uh, Coquitlam, New West, Burnaby. Uh, Victoria, Nanaimo, all have junior B teams, so they're the they're the feeder system. They're the they're the farm team to the junior A's, and I think it's that's the the fluid way it should work. Um, and it seems to be the junior B league is very competitive and a very good quality league. Like it's a good league, and obviously the uh, BC Junior A league speaks for itself um, uh, with um, the play, like with the teams that they have. The island teams are still quite competitive. Uh, Victoria Strong, Nanaimo probably would have Nanaimo probably would have had a really good chance at the Mental Cup. I think if uh, COVID didn't hit, they had a really strong team. Just bring it now to to your teams. Uh, when I when I was prepping for this and I was asking people about you or I was reading, it seems that all of your teams uh, are built around a great defense. And you mentioned some of those great defensive players or transition players a little earlier as well. Um, but what is your personal um uh philosophy when it comes to to teaching defense to your team uh well i think i believe it's uh it's it, it goes back to like playing the game the proper way i believe and uh with my with my junior teams and even in with finland um i didn't allow slashing i thought slashing was a uh an easy way for a, a ref to either equal the or uh um, run up the penalties for your club. So if I took slashing away, um, which um, then our players are only allowed to get proper body position and cross check, um, I found that there were obviously there were less penalties, but it made it easier for a teenager to figure out that he's got just needs body position and he can cross check and he's got help. And another one, which is big, I should have uh, said it right off the bat. I want, I, I prefer, well, not really prefer. Uh, um, that's probably not the proper wording. But if you play on your proper side, if you're a left-handed defender, you should be covering right-handed players. So staying on the staying on your proper side of the floor as a lefty. If you're a lefty, like bigger dude, 
that likes to play uh, lower to the crease, you stay on your proper side. Um, take top side away. Um, always take top side away and and make the players um, go down the alleys. And so those are kind of my mantras. Play your proper side. Cross check. Don't slash because if you're slashing, then you're usually you're reaching. And if you take away the slash, then you have to worry about body position and cross checking. And as a lacrosse player, no one likes to get cross checked, right? It's not it's not fun. <laughs> and so um, my teams never like never hit a guy from behind. You see the numbers, you stop, you hold up, uh, play your proper side, clear the ball away from the bench. Never bring the ball to the bench. Um, yeah, it's those kind of like maybe five or six rules that uh, we went by, and the kids buy in at that age. They they want direction, and uh, it seemed to work out pretty well for the teams I coached. So, um, so you get a bunch of kids at junior. Some have developed bad habits. Some haven't, right? And so, what are you doing as a coach at, at the junior level uh, to work with the minor box program within you know that's affiliating kids up to your program uh, to, to help develop those skills at the at the early levels? Are you working with them? Do you kind of leave the minor program and and let them do their thing? What's your philosophy with working with the minor programs? So the minor programs, and well, we'll use the example of. Uh, Coquitlam is uh, their coaches, like the junior B coaches or the midget coaches are always welcome. They're always welcome to come to our practices, come to like feel like part of the association. There's no real, there's no separation between junior and minor. And that's evident with what's gone in in the transition of uh, the presidency. Uh, James Abbott, he uh, has gone from minor president to junior president to now WLA and junior president. So um, it's it's a seamless transition. So everybody feels like, like obviously in Coquitlam, it feels like a, an ANAC family, like all the way through. Um, the kids are proud to play for that association that live in that neighborhood. And it's pretty neat neighborhood to see as an outsider, as being a guy that's from Ontario, to like drive around Coquitlam after games and every kid's got ADNACs, purple and gold on. And uh, so, and I think a lot of it had to do with the when they redid the arena in 2010, they added all these extra uh, pads that kids could play on. So, and the dress rooms were close to each other. So there was there was connection. There was uh, something obviously we haven't had during COVID, but there was interaction between a midget coach and a junior coach. Like, hey, how's it going? Like, how's your team doing? Um, and then the peewee coach is there, and he's like. Well, you guys had a great game, and uh, thanks. Why don't you come to practice next next week, like if you have time? And that just makes them feel like a part of it, like that the fact that you're just not the junior team and everybody else is below you. It seemed like a, they always talk about family, and a lot of teams are using that mantra. But the Adnax were family from when I saw when I first arrived in 2010, and more than any other association on the West Coast, I'd say. And I was a staff for years. Working together, I mean, obviously, if you share more ideas, you, there's an opportunity to learn something from the other coaches that are there and, and to, you know, try and improve all the players at each age level. So uh, that's really an ideal setup, uh, one that I would think every organization strives to have. Uh, doesn't mean they do have it, but they strive to have something along that those lines. Um, moving gears a little bit here to your international experience. So, uh, working with Finland and Switzerland, um, I might imagine it could be a bit of a challenging process in the beginning, perhaps, you know, non-traditional lacrosse um, uh, countries. Uh, how do you um, develop players in those in non-traditional areas? Is there um, a, set, a set process? Do you try and, and um, you know, give certain players certain experiences? Is it coaching development? Uh, walk us through that, um, that process for you. Sure. So um, I was brought on 2015 to um, Finland. Uh, at the time, Devin Ray was the head coach. Tracy Kolesky was uh, the offensive coach. And they, I guess they had it in the budget to bring in a D coach. So I played with both of them in Calgary. I'd never played previously. I'd always played against Tracy. Uh, Devin was a Western guy. He graduated from Duke. And so we were teammates in Calgary in 2003 and 2004. And um, kind of lost touch with them. Like, uh, you know, we go on with our lives. And uh, out of the blue, Tracy called me and asked if, you know, what 
what was going on with coaching. And I said, well, I just stepped down with the Adnax. Um, and uh, I don't think um, I'm just going to take a break. And he goes, well, what do you think about this Finland thing? And I said, well, sell it to me. What, what's going on? And he goes, obviously, you know, developing country um, and and came kind of gave me the, the lowdown on what's going on. They've been over to Finland a couple of times and, uh, you know, we got a lot of ex-hockey players that, um, you know, that played. So they had the stick skills and stuff. And they've been playing for, you know, a handful of years because I think they hosted the field across U19s in 2012. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something like that. So they had a fresh group of young kids that wanted to learn. So. First trip was over to Prague and uh, Tracy and Devin were, hadn't been there as well. So it was kind of our first trip to like that part of Europe. And there's, you know, if I would suggest to anybody that um, wants to experience European lacrosse, you have to uh, experience the Hobeski, Alex Hobeski tournament uh, outside Prague in uh, Raditon. And uh, that was our first, remember it was a late night on a Friday and we went to practice, not at a well-lit outdoor box. And I don't think the kids dropped the pass the first like 15 minutes. So I was just like, I'm looking at Tracy and Devin. I'm like, is this normal? And they're like, well, they're on fire. They must be excited. So I said, all right. So then we're there for the, the reason we're there is for, it's called the European cup. So we play um, maybe three games or four games in, in four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we're playing like Israel, uh, Switzerland, Germany, you know, we're playing these teams and then we finish on the Monday and then the kids stay and then they play in the Alex Sobeski as like the Turku Titans or the Helsinki Chiefs. And the, and then it's, it's, we leave, like we like travel and go to, go away to Austria. Like I did some traveling after those trips to Vienna and Salzburg and, and so, but Tracy always had to get back because he was coaching in New England, I think. So it was what it was. So we were building. So what we were building for was um, we were building for Syracuse 20, 2015 in the fall uh, for world championships. So it was kind of a quick turnaround. But we went there and we're developing players, right? So we're developing players. And the way the way I found uh, because I had some connections on the West Coast, was I would bring players to Vancouver. So the uh, uh, Rope Yokola was a lefty, uh, probably our best offensive player. Um, I talked to Les Wingrove. He was working with Langley WLA. I said, I got a couple players. And I said, watch them on the Alex Sabeski. And I said, see what you think. And so he watched them. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I think we're willing to take a chance, and we had the we had the support of uh, the Bakken family with Langley, and so all of a sudden they're coming, and there was two more younger kids that were going to Calgary to play for the Raiders, so that we got four of our probably you figure our players core players that are going to be like coming like coming to Canada and experience Canadian lacrosse. So that's how we developed those guys between 2015 and 2019. So they go, they experience the WLA. Um, Marcus, Marcus was our captain in the last one. He came over and played. And so he'd go experience playing in Victoria against the Shamrocks. So that's invaluable, right? He's going to play against the Shamrocks, who are one of the better teams. Uh, then he goes up to Nanaimo on a back-to-back. And then he's calling me and saying, this is unbelievable. I said, yeah, you're, you know, you're living the lacrosse dream. So we had that. We were lucky we had the support of, of uh, Langley and uh, the Calgary Raiders with uh, the late David Fair. He was very supportive of international lacrosse. And so re most recently, the last two summers before World Championships, I brought over Rope's younger brother, uh, Riku Yogala, who's a goaltender. And he was a high-level TPS hockey goalie growing up, but he was always the younger younger brother of Rope. And so over the last five years, the kid just kept growing and growing and growing. And so now he's like, I want to think six two six three, and he came over and he played for me and with the Richmond Roadrunners. Um, I took the head coaching job, saying as long as I can, uh, Rope can play. I mean, uh, Riku can play every minute. Then that's how you develop a goalie. So that's one way, uh, bringing like immersing them in Canadian lacrosse, box lacrosse. But the one thing that really stands out with me, living in West Van, the Capilano Indian Reserve is miles away it's underneath the Lionsgate bridge i can see it from here but they have an outdoor box 
and every Tuesday and Thursday night they have like like all the the locals come and they they have a game. So I show up and they 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 know they know they know me like I'm I'm in the in the community. They know that I played for Six Nation Chiefs. They're very welcoming, and uh, I bring Riku. And so they're like, we, all of a sudden they don't they don't know he's from Finland. They're saying, oh, we have a goalie. That's great. So he puts the mask on. He's got a funky jersey on that he had from Czech Republic. He goes in the net, and all of a sudden they, they don't ask questions. They just want to shoot on a goalie, right? And then about half an hour in, they're like, where is this guy from? And I said he's from Turku, Finland. He can't. His English is kind of so they he takes off his mask. He's got blonde hair. And, and then all of a sudden, they, they took him in like a brother. And I honestly think those nights on the reservation, him taking shots from the North Shore Indian kids, um, was there, there, was a, there was something that we didn't know was coming up. But our number one goalie, um, Lapa, in, in Finland, all of a sudden couldn't come to the World Championships. He pulled out about a, a month before. And I said, remember saying to Riku, like, I get goosebumps thinking about it. But he... They called, they sent a message from Finland saying, Lapa's out. And I'm like, ah, without a, without hesitation, I said, Riku's ready. They're like, what? And I said, Riku's ready uh, to show people that he can play. And I told Tracy, I said, like, uh, Tracy, by that time, Tracy was our head coach because uh, Devin had stepped aside. So Tracy uh, stepped forward as the head coach. I was running he and the short man and the face-off team. And, and obviously, I was taking taken a part of myself to have Riku live with me for two summers in Vancouver. It was not a bad place to live. He was in West Van for most of it. But anyways, long story short, I don't know if you watched any of the world championships, but our our 18-year-old Riku Yokola was the star of the world championship. And we shocked everybody. We finished sixth. And it had to talk with, with uh, that young fella. And uh, hopefully, you know, he might hear his name eventually. He's going to come back to North America and I wouldn't be surprised if he's the first European goaltender to play in the NLL. Well, that's a crazy story. I hope they've uh, updated the box on uh, on the shore there because I remember when I played for a senior B on the shore, there was uh, one end you didn't go to and one end you kind of stuck to, let's say. <laughs> same, same barn, yeah, and uh, holes in the boards and uh, balls were uh, balls were gold because if they went into the went out of the rink, you weren't finding them. And uh, but a picturesque place, like on a sunny night with the lion's gate in the background, the mountains uh, behind the bench. Like uh, I've taken a few people there, like lacrosse guys, like uh, American guys that have been out, like Steve Kisslinger, and and they're like just like if they they don't care like about how it, how it is. It's the fact that we're playing lacrosse, you know. So it was pretty. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's an awesome location. Um, kind of leads into uh we have the last couple of questions for you neil we appreciate your time um and maybe this is a, a perfect segue in terms of talking about the, you know, the finland and, and the the goaltending development where do you see the game going in the next 10 20 years at you know minor junior senior or maybe it's college international pro level um what kind of developments do you see coming down the road uh for the game either in box or field whatever um whatever kind of first comes to mind well, I honestly think uh, the PLL has helped lacrosse. Um, having the PLL step forward and uh, it's top of mind. Like I think um, for kids to dream uh, about playing playing lacrosse. Now there's a, I mean, there's always been the NLL, but not everybody wants. I mean, not all the players can are high level enough to play box lacrosse. But the field lacrosse game for any kid in North America, or even like I'm, I'm waiting for the first European kid to come over. Like obviously it'll happen eventually, um, but the the league itself is so saturated with top level talent um, that the guys are like focused on on being pro lacrosse players. I think that uh, the PLL will only help. The NCAA with social media has taken a large step, I believe. Like even be able to watch a lot of these games over the last month, month and a half, where, and I also think that COVID, COVID happened for a reason, and hopefully it resets the game and we don't lose a lot of athletes that were playing lacrosse. I, I worry about that. Like, did they find something else? Did they find another passion during COVID? They've taken two summers off now, 
Um, I do wor- I honestly do worry about that. I don't know if you guys do, but because um, numbers were, you know, um, numbers needed to go up, we'll say, in registration. And, uh, um, you know, I think from what I understand, the, the BC Junior League is going to go. I don't know what kind of schedule it's going to be, but they pulled the Minto. So, uh, but you need the kids. You need the kids playing. I think it's really important that they have, um, like, they have interaction with their teammates, their friends, um, you know, have their sticks in their hands because COVID was weird for everybody. But I just I, 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 I hope and I pray that um, it didn't hurt the game because we don't know. We don't know where we're going to go um, uh, down the road here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, there's all these numbers out there. Right? Kids that are, are quitting sports by the time they're age 13 and, uh, and you give them two seasons off of a sport and they're they're getting close to that age or even younger kids that haven't had a, a chance to experience it uh at the um the paperweight or uh, or tyke level and and i'm really worried about what's going to happen right so that being said and you brought it up and going off script a little bit neil what, what do we need to do what, what do we need to do as as executives and 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 just people that are within the game to promote it and to make sure that we, we heal and we get back to the numbers where they were and, and continue to grow from there. Well, I think you have to bring it to the grassroots. You have to bring it to the schools. Like you have to make it part of the curriculum. You have to like, it. it's a must. I think it's part, like, especially Canada, like we have a, we have a free pass into the front hallways of these uh, elementary schools because Canada's national summer sport is lacrosse. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be walking through the doors and saying, hey, we've got sticks, we've got softballs, like, that the kids aren't going to get hurt with. Like, let's have an introduction to this. Because my son's never had lacrosse in his elementary or high school at West Van High, and there's no reason not to have it. Like, there's such a rich uh, um, tradition and culture on the North Shore that there's no reason why that shouldn't be part of it we have a you know there's a cad an academy at one of the high schools uh, carson graham but that's too late like i mean i think you're you're missing we're missing the boat on that it needs to be introduced um at a younger age like when they're in elementary school and they can play soft lacrosse which we probably uh were are aware of with the soft lacrosse sticks and it as we know eventually you, you get caught by the lacrosse bug and hopefully, obviously, we need, you know, you, you don't really want to bring it towards being a bug, but you want the kids to to all of a sudden be passionate about something. And why not lacrosse, right? They've been sitting around for, you know, a year and a half now. Um, if you go right at the schools come this September and say, let's do this, and, you, you know, you grab the whole North Shore and you go to every elementary school, and you have the Vancouver Warriors going to this, every elementary school in the North Shore, then it can only help. It can only help the game. It can only help registration, and it can only open everybody's eyes for well, kids, parents to uh, maybe register their kid in lacrosse instead of like taekwondo or soccer. You know, hockey's not even that big on the North Shore, so that that would be my suggestion. Hopefully, that that suffices your question. Yeah, no, it does. It's it's a great answer, and I think you know, um, you know, on the flip side of that, right, is coaching, right? And 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 coaches are adults. We have the ability to control what we can control, and and we've actually had an opportunity though to to grow as coaches, you know, maybe more than we ever ever have before because there's been that pause, right? And so, what what have you done over the past year and a half, or or just you know anything that you've done throughout your life, or you continue to do to to continue to improve as a coach? Well, uh, right before COVID, um, like in the fall before COVID, I was hired by Switzerland. And that was a new challenge, uh, to say the least. And originally, uh, I was going to coach in Switzerland with John Tavares. He watched a lot of the world championships out of Langley. And he said, you know, he saw, you know, saw a calling, like to see that some of these these, uh, countries, like he wasn't really aware of the fact that how how good they were and uh, how developed the game was in those countries. So I've been friends with John since 1986, and we're still very good friends, talk daily. And uh, uh, he said, you know, I like I like to be involved. So um, I said, well, uh, 
what are you looking at? He goes, well, you know, I have a bit of contact with the Swiss team. Um, you know, he goes, maybe I'll give them a call. So he, he put his foot forward and, and did that. And I was, I was still with Finland and we had just finished. And then he's like, well, you know, it looks like they, they're interested in like growing it. Um, would you want to do it with me? And I said, yeah, like, I'd love to coach you. Like, I mean, if I was living back East, I'd probably be coaching with them, hopefully. And uh, so that was the plan. And Switzerland agreed. And uh, then um, he he ran into some stuff in regards to his teaching and stuff. And Bandits, all of a sudden, he was named uh, head coach. And his responsibility changes. So then you pivot, right? And then we uh, – they st- – st- I, he explained to them what had happened, like why he couldn't do it. And then they said, we still want you involved. Would you want to bring someone else on board? So I brought Brian Reese, uh, a University of Maryland grad, MLL guy, uh, Denver Outlaws, Chesapeake Bayhawks, teammate of mine in Washington, Pittsburgh, roommate. His wife's the head coach at the University of Maryland, Kathy Reese. So any American ties. So. I asked him, you know, what do you think about Brian Reese? He's got quite a resume, and they they agreed to it. So we made a trip over to Zurich and met met the boys and went through a three day training camp. And you know what? They were they were raving about what we ran them through, and it was you know it's a training camp similar to what we ran in Finland or what we'd run in in uh, Coquitlam, the same drills and um, just you know you get you get a level of expectation, and um, you're if you're a straight shooter. And you're honest with the kids. I find that they buy into it. They're looking for some leadership. And uh, you know, our first our first uh, training camp session uh, went really well. Like even the general manager there, Mario, he was really thrilled with what we brought forth. And uh, the boys really took care of it. Like put the effort in. And they were 18th in Langley for the World Championships. So obviously, you know, they're looking to improve. And if we can improve Switzerland lacrosse. What's the end goal here, boys? Like, I mean, obviously they're talking about the Olympics and uh, I think that's everybody's end goal for a lot of, or our, not end goal, but that's kind of like the the target that we'd all like to like uh, bring lacrosse to LA 2027. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, well Neil, uh, we want to really thank you for your time. It's, it's been an honor and a pleasure uh, to talk with you. Um, part of the reason why we're doing this, Neil, is is we're trying to uh, every day continuously uh, get better as coaches. So uh, definitely uh, lots of great uh, tidbits and things that you said here that I know I can take and use with my program. Um, the last question that we ask here is uh, is always the same. Uh, in this pursuit uh, that we have, who do you think we should uh, we should talk to next? Uh, I think John Tavares would be a good uh, good fellow to talk to. Yeah. He's uh, very knowledgeable um, of the game, and, I mean, he's got some stories, to say the least. And if you need contact info, I I think I might have his number. That would be awesome. Yeah, we'd really love that. Yeah, great. It was an honor to have you on the show. Uh, Thank you so much, Neil. really appreciate your time um, this evening, and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. All right, I'm going to take the painting down from behind me now. So uh. <laughs> There you go. Hey, Mark, uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation with Neil. It was one of our, our earlier conversations that we're now going back over. So I'm, you know, as listening to it and uh, I'm thinking to myself, um, you're just the, the progress that we've had personally in terms of our own interviewing uh, since the beginning there. Um, and things have gotten much better. But uh but lots of great things from Neil, and you know, I think the interview um, will kind of speak for itself in many ways, and we don't want to rehash too much of it here, but just some discussion points, perhaps, and, and things that we would take uh, for our own purposes. So uh, I'll let you go first, and, and something that you felt like you'd want to take out of the conversation and try to implement, or, or what's your first discussion point you want to go over, Mark? Yeah, as as a field lacrosse coach, I think what he said about defense and, and why his defenses were so great, right, was just the simplicity of it. We're not going to throw crazy slashes. We're going to stay out of the penalty box. We're going to use our footwork and we're going to, uh, we're going to stay with the guys. Right. And I think when he said that in the moment, and then again, when I was listening, I thought right away to the Notre Dame defense, right? If anyone watches Notre Dame play lacrosse, yep. They have matchups. They try to get their best pole on the best player, 
But when he has to slide off of it, they're not chasing around trying to jump back into their matchups. They're just all playing really good, sound, fundamental defense, great footwork, really, 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 really disciplined checks, um, get the ball on the ground, get it in their sticks, and, and get it up the field as fast as possible. Right, And I think that's the hallmark in any sport of a great defense. We always say, I think offenses should keep it simple as well. But if you can do the little things right on defense, you can get your sticks and passing lanes. You can do all those kind of things. You can play with anybody and you can you can take away a lot of the your opponent's athleticism just by playing, you know, really, really solid defense. So that's the first thing I took away for sure. So with regards to defense, you know, it's funny you mentioned that in the slashing because I had a conversation with a couple of my players in our, uh, our shortened uh, COVID season here in Ottawa in 2021. And um, they're saying, oh, you know, this guy here is is whacking. He's he's bringing big chops down. I said, well, just time time it then. Like he's going to go one, two. When the second time he goes to slash, you go right by him. And, um, and so many players end up on their toes and you talk about being on your toes, but I mean like over their toes, chest down, because they're slashing, the weight of their body is, is forward. And uh, it just allows guys to go by you, smart offensive players to go by you. So um, really important to hone that in. Um, you know, when I'm teaching defense to to box um, players, um, you know, the slashing has a time and a place, but just like Neil said, you know, it, it really teaches you poor fundamentals and ultimately it does give referees great opportunities to um, to give you penalties. Um, you know, and that's another thing I would say to players, listen, that was a call. That was you you whacked the guy ten times. I would have given you a penalty after the fourth one. So if it's not because you're trying to dislodge the ball, you don't be cross don't be slashing it. It's not it's not worth it. You're not protecting space. You're not, uh, you know, actually pushing the player away from the prime scoring up uh, area and uh, and ultimately taking away their will to score through the slashes. So that was one thing for sure. You know, I really I liked hearing having him here say that. Um, what did you think about his uh, discussion with regards to preparing for a Minto and um, and uh, with the the Adnax? Yeah, I thought. Um it's an interesting process, right? You know, and I think, you know, the part that I took wasn't the the 90 days, which I know that you, you really took away from it, but was the the development and how Mintos just became expected there. And it started, you know, right from the early ages and getting kids involved and getting that in the, in the um, ingrained in the culture and the environment there, right? And I think of, I think of great organizations like the All Blacks or, you know, Syracuse Lacrosse or, you know, whoever else it might be. And and that's a common theme, right, is that the culture, the environment is is about the process. It's not necessarily about winning at an early age. It's we're going to do the right things every time we get on the floor. And that expectation is is important. And I also think like he kind of talked about a little bit was, you know, not that they were the first, right? But they they came they they came to to light at the right time, right? And they had almost like a uh, you know a, a Malcolm Gladwell approach. Like their ten thousand hours were in way before a lot of other programs were. And I think that's something that um, you know, when we talk about the growth of the game, and I know you mentioned this with Alberta off of the conversation, but we talk about the growth of the game, and and you know you can go from. BC and having, you know, little lacrosse or little success at that, that high level of lacrosse, at least, at least, and one generation of players later, you can ingrain a culture and, and go to 10 mental cups in a row and start to win them and start to really become a, a great, powerful program. So I thought that was really, really cool to listen to. Yeah, the 90 days thing, I think, which is, you know, uh, every week you have to get better. You have 90 days to get to Minto from the beginning of the season, and that's something that perhaps a lot of people don't think about and a lot of players may not think about and of course we're coaches here but <laughs> um but just that, what you actually have in the season like how short that is right realistically right like if i'm coaching you know in the ohl to get to a mem cup a mem cup is usually in the spring we start a training camp in august i have almost 10 11 months to get my guys to the spot to win a mem cup and i think it's, it's such a difference for us in lacrosse it's just a shortened period of time so um you know it's a huge challenge right um, but you know, he talks about family, and that's the the Adnax of being a family, and everyone is welcome, and everyone's practice, and they change the arena around, and the rooms are close together, and the coaches could have a chance to talk, and I think everyone 
ideally talks about you know their organization being like a family it's a lot easier to to, to say than it is to do um you know but ultimately um success breeds success and being at that level um year after year you know you have younger players who come with you to a minto who now have that experience as they become your older players and they can school younger players in what it takes to get that level and, and be successful. Um, and so I think that's really uh, perhaps into our next kind of point is talking about, you know, some of the growth of the game across the country, but, you know, what the um, Alberta was in the Minto Cup and then was not and then now is back in. But having an Alberta team there, um, while they haven't been overly successful uh, in many instances, it did be Orangeville, uh, was that kind of what year that was, uh, we should say it too often there. Orangeville guys might get a little pissed off with us, but they did beat Orangeville. I think that was our first game, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll let that one slide. But, um, you know, in terms of being in a finals or winning a mental cup, right, they haven't seen that success. But ultimately being there, being part of that experience, um, having to go through that with the coaches, with the players, the administration, all those things filter down to the rest of the province and the importance of, of uh, giving those players that opportunity um, you know, to ultimately try and grow our game uh, outside of the traditional hotbeds of BC and Ontario. Yeah, and I think giving kids the dream, right? Given that U9 player, that U11 player, and U11, U13, that's when kids really start to pay attention, right? So they start to know, oh, I can, I, I can go to a Minto. I can go to a Minto. Like that's, that's something to strive for, right? And so, it, yeah, it's about growing the game at the elite level and, and making sure that, you know, Alberta or Ontario or BC is, is a, as good as possible to, to compete and win the Minto. But the, the trickle-down effect of that is, is huge. Whether you're good at the Minto or whether you're bad at the Minto, just getting there and, and representing your province is something that I think, you know, every province, you know, I think in the states, every state should have it, right? Everyone should have that opportunity to to at least dream I could be there one day. And if the dream is alive, then the, then the game is alive and you can grow the game at, at, a, at a at least high level with numbers, right? I think the one thing too that I wanna I wanna talk about it's the same idea that the growth of the game. He talked about the difference in Ontario and BC and how BC's changed their rules, but they used to do make you do your mandatory intermediate unless you had the exceptional status. And he mentioned Westberg as one of the guys who got that exceptional status. But you know um, how it was set up there and how he thinks that Ontario and the way BC set up now is is great because it's going to make lacrosse better. And I do think that that does uh, make the most elite players, right? You can be elite, but I also think that, you know, it might hurt the growth of the game and the numbers as a whole, right? And so if everyone's playing their mandatory two years of intermediate and then they go to the junior C, junior B, junior A pipeline, more kids are playing lacrosse. And at the end of the day, like the LTAD says, you know, it's, it's, it's about lacrosse for life. You know, and the more kids that are playing at U17 and continuing to play after that is, um, is what's going to make that lacrosse for life. Men's league is, is full of guys that have played at a very low level their whole life, but love the game. Right. And I think that's, uh, that's really something that should be considered as well. And, and I think we have to do a better job of that in Ontario of, not changing the system, right, but making sure we're looking out for all the players and making sure that all the players have an opportunity to continue to play until they're, uh, you know, 21 years old and beyond. Yeah, so I, mean, I know you mentioned Richmond Roadrunners and, and guys wanting to play for the local community there. Um, having coached intermediate be in Richmond, um, you know, there was players who were in there, I think, I guess they were 19, and they were going to go play junior B the following year, but you know, they just couldn't make it. They weren't good enough, and so they kind of fell off the wayside. But I think about those guys. They might not have. They would have stopped playing after a midget, perhaps, if um, if there wasn't the opportunity to play intermediate. So, you know, having the tier two junior B still gives them the opportunity to keep going. Um, but uh, you know, it is important to make sure they have that opportunity to, to to stay in the game because if we can keep them to around age 20, the chances of them giving back and and staying in the system either as you know, men's league guys or, or um, with their own families in the future is it's much better than if they stop playing age 16, right? So, um, but the other side is an interesting one. I've had this conversation with uh, people in Ontario is about you know, the intermediate league or intermediate division, which is now U22 uh, in Ontario. And it's a five-year age group. And some people feel like maybe it should be a two-year age group or, or some people think the opposite to stay at five. But 
I think the way it is now is is um, I, I personally I think it's great, you know, because what happens is you have kids who continue to play for those five years, uh, and then you can also have guys who come out who um, are younger, but they get a chance to play against older, stronger players who aren't as fast. So they can develop their skills um, while playing against what would be a junior-sized person, let's say, (laughs) and and still, you know, see success because they're more skilled and they're faster. Um, But ultimately, you know, that will give them an opportunity to keep going. So now we're, we're looking at both levels here. We're giving the opportunity for continuing you know, uh, players to continue to play who were never going to play junior. Um, and we're also giving playing opportunities for young players who can make a junior team, but they won't get any real minutes. Um, and so when you don't get the real minutes, how much ball touch are you going to get? How much development are you really going to get? Right. Um, so I think it kind of, it goes, it goes both ways and it can, it can, it can work quite well. Um, you know, we played a game recently or a couple of games um, as a, a U22 or young U22 team with a, a bunch of, U17 players and we were playing an older U22 team and um, both games were I think the game was 9-7 and then 3-2 because you know we were more skilled and faster but not as perhaps intellectual about the game <laughs> or safer yeah. I should say and then the other guys were bigger and stronger right so you know, it, it can be a great mix right and both sides got something out of that game um, the concern sometimes is of course uh, older players not having anyone on your bench to keep things settled but we're talking here about the growth and about uh, maintaining playing opportunities for all all skill levels and all ages. And I think um, it's important to have those considerations when you're sitting around a table. And uh, and I think uh, it can go both ways, but it's a it's a difficult process. Not you know not one you're always easily to be have success at. Yeah, and I think like you know if I just put on my Kufla hat for a second right I think you know there's there's some talk recently on at least on Twitter and, the, and social media of trying to trying to include BC in the Maritime League and, and getting a, a true national champion and field across and you know not every kid wants to go to the states to play some good players want to stay in Canada we've got some really good ones on our team at Carleton right they're all over Kufla but if we if we if we only focus on, you know, after uh, after 10th grade on the most elite kids and we don't have these avenues for other kids to stay and play, it's going to be really hard to grow the game at that university level, the field game at that university level, because at the end of the day, a lot of these kids stop playing after 10th grade, right? And so if they can just stay in the sport, even at intermediate, for two more years, and as you know, and as everyone listening knows, you know, you might have a great skill set for field but just can't compete at a high level in box. And, you know, with, with little, with little opportunities around the, uh, the, the country to play field lacrosse, just keeping them with a stick in their hand for those two years can really help grow the, the field game at the university level. I think. I think there was the seven year or eight year eligibility also allows for some of those guys to be playing Kufla who are on NLL tickets, right? Yeah. We got the, the NL, like, uh, we view field and box as different. So if you're playing professional box, you can still come play field. So there's, there's a, you know, uh, one of our own coaches, Brock played field uh, for, for, you know, eight years or he played 80 something games, 10 games a year. You do the math, right? Seven, eight years he played. Right. But um, yeah, I think the the more that we can get playing uh, the game, uh, the better it is for the game at, at, at any level, you know, whether it's, you know, 35 and over or it's uh, it's eight and under. Right. Last thing I want to touch on is a little bit the international stuff, and um, just he's had some, you know, Neil's had some pretty good experiences and interesting ones with regards to, to Finland and moving over to Switzerland. But um, you know, going going over there and then and then um, you know how he's going to grow the game with those groups and um, and being at the tournament, the Alistair tournament, he mentioned that's something I've always wanted to go to. Um, love to have that opportunity. And um, seeing his seeing those couple teams there, um, you know, like that's that's an example of a non-traditional area that now has this, I would say, tradition uh, with regards to that tournament, you know, and it's taken some time to do, but um, they done a great job of it. Internationally, it's known. Everyone in North America knows about it. So, you know, I think internationally, it's not it's not impossible to do those kind of things, right? And we just had a conversation with a coach from Portugal who's started his own, um, you know, tournament, a field tournament. 
So, you know, I guess I'm trying to say here is I think you can create a tradition of lacrosse in non-traditional markets um, if you have the right intentions and uh, you're patient and you work at it. Yeah, all right. Well, hey, Darsh, thanks. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. It was, uh, you know, th- thanks to Neil as well. It was a great interview and uh, look forward to talking to you guys next week. Yeah, we look forward to uh, talking with Neil again and um, some great conversations after the interview as well. So um, we have the opportunity to have him back on. Uh, we'll make sure to touch on some of those and, uh, and bring them to our listeners.